I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I've got a case of cowardice. Cowardice. In our midst, Laura. We've got cowardice everywhere. I'm seeing it in every direction. Um, but mostly I am seeing it in this one. Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo have both won this year's Booker Prize. It was announced at a ceremony on Monday after the judges for the literary award rebelled against its rules. What? Hold on. We're, let me just do this nice little paragraph here. This is from the New York Times. We were told quite firmly that the rules state you can only have one winner, Peter Florence, the chairman of the Booker Judges, said at a news conference. But the consensus was to flout the rules and divide this year's prize to celebrate two winners. Cowardice! <laughs> Do you know what's my favorite thing about all of this? And by favorite, I mean I absolutely hate it. Yeah, tell me. That the Booker has always been touted, formerly the man Booker, has uh-huh. always been touted that this is the prestigious literary juried award that yeah. provides a commercial uptick in uh-huh. sales of a book. Well, thank goodness that Margaret Atwood's going to get that. She, I was worried about <sighs> the sales for that one. I know. Who? The Testaments <laughs> was was doing very poorly. Um, yeah, no. So this happened, you know, we were kind of sitting down, well, what are we going to talk about today on Print Run? And Let's be real. We were here, eating brownies. We weren't <laughs> asking ourselves that question. You're right. That was a much, that was what we call dramatization of the conversation we were having. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we were sitting here, and this came through, and we're kind of responding to it now, so it's not as though I have some deep, developed take, but man, do I hate that decision. Um, and maybe with a little bit of time, I'll hate it less, but I just, like, first, like, before we even get to Atwood, right? which we're going to get to Atwood, um, two winners, like, they, you know, rewrote these rules, you know, in the 90s, something. They, Specifically so, so that, that there this, couldn't be two winners. And it's like... You know, this this other writer, you know, Bernadine, you know, Evarista, like, this is someone who actually could use, you know, the uptick and stuff. This is someone who is doing, you know, legitimately interesting work, you know, something that, you know, they're writing. She doesn't this. have a Hulu show. <laughs> that honestly should be a requirement to win any award. If you have a show on Hulu, you don't get to win any more literary awards. Um that feels like one that's gonna come back to bite me in the ass. It that, definitely that is. It definitely is. <laughs> um anyway, but um, I just, man, because they're splitting the prize money. They split the accolades. It feels cheap for both of them, right? Like, I don't know. I just, pick a damn winner. Your job also, is to pick a winner. Like, you failed. So you, this New York Times article, it took them three hours to decide on both of them. Uh-huh. And then the judges were told by the committee that absolutely not, they had to do it again. So they argued for an hour and a half, and then they argued for 30 more minutes. So in total, it was five hours of arguing, and everybody just rolled over and let... It's like Grow less... up. Everyone just needs to grow up <laughs> and award the... And give the... Like, you're literally there to do one thing. You had one job, and you didn't do it. And, and then you get to this idea of... I don't know. It sure this sure feels like an award that was given to kind of a zeitgeisty cultural product and not a really inventive piece of fiction. I'm sorry if that's not true. If you're someone who really thinks the testament slaps, like please write in and tell me about why it does. It doesn't but like, sound it's... like anything other than acknowledging the fact that couriers were sent to literally the corners of the earth to deliver special numbered and bound copies. 
of this book. Like, how could you as a judge, if somebody came to the far reaches of the world where you were on vacation and delivered a special like numbered copy of a book with your name on it, Mm -hmm. like how would you not vote for that book? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where, like, and I think back a lot, like, you and I, we were at the London Book Fair earlier. Wow, if that was this year, that feels like it mm-hmm. was, like, five years ago. Um, I've aged a lot since then. <laughs> as have I. Um, that was back in March, March. right? And they were kind of hyping up for this one. I think we taught, we took pictures of it, we tweeted them out when it happened. But, like, this book's whole publishing program was just about being, hey, Remember how all we're talking about is the imagery from this book? It was sort of this circular loop, right? Because they did this thing. They simulated a protest, right? Yeah. Like, that was it. They like, we, wa- we were at the London Book Fair, and suddenly... We heard people yelling, carrying signs. People came in marching as though they were protesting something. There were something. security guards following them around. Yeah, and we so you and I got interested. We went over to see what it was, and it was a fake protest. It was And it was designed to play off the fact that at that moment, and really at all moments... You know, women's reproductive rights were under heavy assault here in the States and really everywhere. You know, and people were using the handmade costume, you know, from the show and from the book um, to kind of invoke a certain set of imagery from The Handmaid's Tale to describe the present political situation. And then this looped back around, right? They were using the protests as imagery for the next book. And I just remember, I think we both kind of felt this way. I felt kind of sick about it. They gave me a rape whistle, a lime green branded <laughs> rape whistle. That's just that's crazy, right? Like, and this, so I realize now that this is that has nothing to do with Margaret Atwood. Like, it's not, and or it probably doesn't even have to do with the book. But like, the point is that like, man, this book was trying to do a very specific thing, and it feels like it was conceived as like this sequel to kind of play off of the fact that Hulu was really like it was a. It feels like a publishing project more than an artistic project. If that, and if so that makes sense. And so to give yeah. it along, to get to split the man Booker with a book that is pro poetry and prose it's, and is front like is doing something, you yeah. know. And so I don't know. Like I welcome if you're someone who really got something out of the testaments and you're someone like I'm not actually trying to come at the book. I just think like this is the supposed to be the interesting award, you know? Like, this is supposed to be the one that... It's supposed to be the award for the underdogs. Yeah, well, it's, it's supposed to be the award for the most innovative thing that, you know, is really kind of pushing limits. It used to, you know, the way we used to think of it is, like, this is the one for the book everyone wanted to read, you know? And I guess, you know, sort of ubiquitous, you know, all we do now all day is, like, talk about what's on television sort of way. The Atwood book is that, but... I guess mo- maybe I'm mostly just mad at the split. It's like, if you want to give Margaret Atwood the award, give her the damn award. But you didn't. You wanted to hedge your bets. You wanted to do this weird thing. And it's like they're all high-minded about it. You know, They're like, well, we just we pushed back and we decided that this was the way to do it. It's like, come on. You argued for and, an hour and a half. And I'm like, like <laughs> maybe we are, maybe we're particularly sensitive today about award stuff, given what happened with the Nobel last week. Um for Which those was, that don't know, tell tell the audience <laughs> what well, happened gave, with the they Nobel. Gave the 2019 uh, Nobel in Literature to Peter Hanke. I think that's how you say his last name. I've heard it only a couple times. But um, this Austrian guy who is, I think, mostly widely known as sort of a like a genocide denialist. Like he was someone who was at this, you know, Serbian dictator's um, 
funeral and stuff, and he's kind of been known as this, you know, right winger who really kind of downplayed atrocities, you know, in in Serbia as they were happening. And, and this is the year like, after the Nobel was canceled because of sexual assault. <laughs> it's just like, can we just get one of these right? Can someone in the literary establishment just do something right? Goodreads Reader yeah. Choice Awards. I'm counting on you. <laughs> it's time. We're there. Because I remember we did. So I don't even remember which show. And I we risk repeating content here. But you and I have done shows before about, like, the nature of awards, right? Yeah, I think juried versus, multiple like, times popular. Yeah. And the juried awards are the ones that are supposed to go to stuff people haven't seen, Right. Like, it's supposed to go to, like, you. that's why you bring in the professionals. You bring in people. They're who curated. Are, right, that's exactly, the point. Who are more aware of the literary scene, who maybe have a, a stake in doing some taste making, who want to show readers something really fascinating or interesting that they haven't seen before. And that, I realize, is not the express purpose of the man Booker, but that element is still in play. And what I do expect from a juried award, even when it's meant to just go to, like, you know, the best piece of fiction is just a little bit more inventive. I don't know. I just maybe this is me being mean and bad, but I just have a hard time believing that the Testaments is the most notable and innovative and gripping piece of fiction. I don't know. I I I'm, I'm just and, even if it is though, I'm sort of coming down on the side of like this is the this is the award that has the reputation of going to the underdogs. This is the one that's always surprising. This is the one that has financial notoriety and success paired with it and so to me like if that's what your award is Mm -hmm. like it is important like if this is a juried award it is important for the jury to look at that reputation and really like take that into consideration like to me i don't know i mean who knows what what the guidelines are specifically for the award but like to me they're like a a new award winner of award like the the booker has we're we're adding on to a canon here we're adding on to the legacy of this particular award and and it feels sort of like they're just throwing all of that hard work for past years just away um and so like i i'm worried you know last year for like the first time in recent memory the the book went to the the favorite right it Mm -hmm. went to um, Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah. And then this year it's Margaret Atwood and somebody else. And it just, to me, it feels, it feels like we're a little bit too focused on hype now. I don't know, but maybe it's that's very just, hype. no, it's very, maybe I'm hype-y. just being a hipster. We've I don't know. Really, we've really become hype beasts. Hype well, beasts. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I, I just think that it's, um, I just like, look for, for instance, let me just read to you the rest of these novels that are on this list, right? And this is from the Times article as well. Um, and this, so let's start with, um, let's start with Evaristo here. An experimental writer, well-established in Britain, but not widely known internationally, is more of a surprise choice. Um, Girl, Woman, Other features a dozen characters, most of them black and British women. It's written in a blend of poetry and prose, a hybrid that Evaristo calls fusion fiction. Okay, that's kind of interesting, right? Neat. We've got something There's formally interesting. There's Duck's Newberry interesting. Port Should... that's a thousand pages yeah. of one sentence. Yeah, you've got a thousand page, um, you've got a thousand page sentence or two uh, from Duck's Newberry Port. You've got a book here, um, an orchestra of minorities about a Nigerian poultry farmer. Um, you've got a Salman Rushdie novel. You've got... Um, a story, this is called 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, a story about a sex worker in Istanbul who was murdered and left in the garbage on the outskirts of the city. These are 
at least in my telling, it's like one of these is not like the other. You know, it's like we've got some really interesting stuff going on here, and I just again maybe that maybe this will be a take we regret or something, but I don't think it will. Like I just sort of think like they at the very least you have to say that this was the safe choice, oh. right? Like. I just it's, don't want to give an award to, like, a book whose publicity stunt, like, makes me concerned that there's a violent protest going on and then hands me a rape whistle that's neon colored. Yeah, like, that was weird. I just don't want that. That was genuinely weird. Yeah, though. that was generally uncomfortable. Um, anyway, should we, welcome should we like, you know, have a, have a show or something? Uh, welcome to this episode of Print Run. Uh, my name is Eric Hain. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. If I still had my rape whistle, I would blow it. Jesus Christ. But I can just say hello, Laura, instead. Um, yeah, um, we've got an interesting show for you today. We're going to talk about a number of different things. Um, namely, the big topic, I think, today is um, people in publishing being the creators in publishing is kind of the inter- is the topic today among a few other little tidbits here and there. Uh, before we get to that, how about the basic rundown? Welcome. It is still the first half of October, Ooh. meaning that we have three special episodes coming up for you yet. It includes, as always, the query show and the first pages show, where we take real queries and first pages, real pages by real you, critiqued by real us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's super fun. And then we will also have a special flex episode. So we're going to be doing one on conferences. If we're lucky, we might also throw in another one. Um, So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I hope you all are, too. If you are saying, hey, what is that? I would like to listen to you talk about conferences. Head on over to Patreon, search for Print Run Podcast, and subscribe. To get access to literally days of content, it is $8 a month. It's a pretty good deal at this yeah. point. Um, send us and yeah. send us whatever you would like us to critique or any suggestions or requests or questions. We're at printroompodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so um, the fr- place I wanted to start today, um, apart from ranting about the Booker Award, um, I guess where we wanted to begin this one is with something that you know, this isn't so much of like a big topic we're going to discuss, but just checking in on something that uh as a show we are constantly looking at and talking about and that is the idea of censorship right and that thing that everybody thinks is happening but actually isn't (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly and you see so censorship in um you know in prior you know discussions and as we kind of see it get batted around in the publishing world off is usually something used by like Milo Yiannopoulos. But but it's like people who, you know, really want to get across regressive views. And when people say, you know, hey, we don't want that sort of book in YA or we don't want that sort of book at all within Milo's case or anyone's like that, you know, the right wingers love to come out and call that, oh, it's censorship. It's, you know, these people are shutting down our views. They're silencing us. Um, You know, this is, you know, dangerous. You know, they start invoking things like 1984, you know. All these different like totalitarian societies that they believe that they are now living in because they're not allowed to espouse um, revanchist views in you know mainstream media. Um, but I thought I thought a lot about that and how like askew our conversations about censorship really are in relation to something that happened um, in the basketball world. Uh, the other day, uh, yeah, the, the I know that classic me, place we talk men, about all the time. <laughs> men basketball or women basketball? Men's basketball, the NBA. Men's basketball. Um, the and, thing I know nothing about. Right, sure. Um, this last week, I guess maybe it was like more than a week now. I don't remember, but 
um, a guy named Daryl Morey. He's the general manager for a team called uh, the Houston Rockets. And the for reasons we don't need to get into here, the Rockets are a team that, apart from being popular in Houston, are very popular in China. They were the team that had Yao Ming for a while. Hmm. They're a team that um, Chinese people really like. They watch them. They buy their jerseys. You know, like it's a popular squad over there. And... But this guy, the guy who runs the team the other day, he sent out what felt like a fairly innocuous tweet. And it was basically like um, just like a light little thing supporting the protests in Hong Kong. Um, and the the backlash for this was honestly remarkable to watch. All of a sudden, um, you know, the Chinese government had issued this thing, you know, the um, the NBA and China, you know, suddenly the Rockets were no longer available on TV. What? Suddenly they were, you know, merchandise for the team has been pulled down. How um, how did the like fans feel about this, or do we not know because it was just like well, we don't know. I mean, it's structurally the, everything was pulled down. Everything was so basically China reacted very very strongly the, to the, the, the government. government. Yeah, the government. They reacted very strongly. They basically said they were going to reevaluate their relationship, not only with the Rockets, but with the National Basketball Association wow. total. And it was, you know, we suddenly we were finding out that Daryl Morey, this guy, was maybe in danger of being fired for tweeting this. And the NBA had to release a statement apologizing for the post, which then got translated into Chinese to sound much more severe <gasps> than it actually was. Um, but, like, the point is, like, we had this instance all of a sudden where you know someone someone expressed a viewpoint that was barely even you know like by any american press standards very pretty innocuous right like right. i think the post is something like i stand for freedom you know some boring thing that anyone on any side of the spectrum would say and agree with and interpret in their own way you know but like um it got people fired up and it had really it's and it might still have really big financial consequences for a lot of different people and it's and it drew a government response from China and it just made me think like when we talk about censorship in America right now we're not talking about that you know what i mean right. we we need to just keep perspective here and realize like what it actually looks like for like governing bodies to crack down on opinion and I can promise you it's not people in YA being mad about racism <laughs> is basically my point. And so I, it's not like we have – there's no, like, big, you know, fancy take here I have. I just think, like, in the moments when we actually see, the you know, state power being put toward opinion expression, um, it's worth – like, it's worth seeing that and being like, okay, hey, maybe some of these fights, you know, when people get on here and talk about how – um, censorious, you know, the certain book communities are and how, you know, there's this cultural monopoly that's happening that, you know, right-wingers like to talk about. Like, it's not actually, like, just remember this kind of stuff when that, because inevitably in the next few weeks, someone will say something in the book world and we'll have to have a whole other sequence about it. And just remember, <laughs> like, this kind of, just remember that. That's not what's happening. That's we not, can see, that's Because not we can see what it actually looks like in other instances and i think it's worth i think it's worth keeping in mind but speaking of censorship 
Eric. Please. Um, I would like to transition us to another edition of What's Going On Down Hell There. Hell yeah. My favorite. This this time, as it res- uh, if you're not familiar with this particular segment, um, we find it very important to report on the news from Australia and New Zealand, specifically book news as it relates and um, sometimes as it is perplexing. So the question, what's going on down there? This week has something to do with George Orwell. As all things do. As all things do. everything is 1984. <laughs> um, everything is The Handmaid's Tale. We've got like three books we're allowed to do cultural references for. One of them now won the Booker. So, please, tell me about so, 1984. Um, George Orwell. So, when 1984 first came out, um, there were limited copies initially like shipped to Australia. And there's this one, one guy... Um, his last name is Gellert. He got a copy right away, right? And he's been holding on to this first edition of 1984 in Australia for a long time, right? So he recently put this book up for auction and some teacher bought it and it was much higher than what he could afford, but he was able to work it out and whatever. And then he, the the thing is, is that this edition was signed. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was very curious, like, how did this get signed? What's going on? So he started doing research, and it had to even do with, like, looking at passenger manifests and seeing when, like, George Orwell visited and see if he could have met this Gellert fellow and when this book could have been signed, Mm -hmm. right? Because it wasn't signed right when the book was produced. Sure. Um, And it turns out, Eric... That it was a hoax. Uh-huh. Why? But it, <laughs> so, so this book was not actually signed by George Orwell, okay. although it is a first edition. And the reason that it um, was forged was not actually fra- like a fraudulent purpose. He wasn't like trying to sell it or anything. He wasn't trying to sell it. Um, it was for, quote, a far more relatable reason. Gellert was tired of lending books to friends and not getting them back. Telling people the books were signed and therefore too valuable to lend was the perfect excuse. <laughs> so this dude's just take, he's taking a pen and going into his bookshelf yeah. and just like signing names. Yes. And like so, this guy, so this guy, so this guy, who was featured as quoting the the uh, Gellert was yeah. featured as saying, "It's not it's not generous, but at least your books stay in excellent condition." I think more people should do that. Honestly, like why not? <laughs> like just like it's a good discussion piece. You can have it. No one will take your stuff. Like I don't know. I'm into it, but. Um, Thank you for that update of what's yeah. happening. So in what's the- happening down there is a is a is a curmudgeon that Eric aspires to be. Mm-hmm. Forged signatures in his first edition books so that he didn't have to lend them to his friends. I'm gonna go home and start signing all my books um, <laughs> with just various names. Um, I'll do Michael Chabin somewhere in there. That'll be good. Yeah. Um, what else do I? What, who else would I sign? I'm trying to think. Oh, I'd sign a Flannery O'Connor. Mm. That would be like my next one. Mm. Go into the Bible, write God. Mm. That one. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, you know. Good strategy. Anyway. Just don't put it on auction. You know, that's that's kind of the thing. So anyway, that's what's going on down there. Among our most important work, I would say the most important work is that we prop- propagandize uh, the country of Australia. That yeah. I think Sometimes is the New key Zealand. to this show. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Although, like our our um our Kiwi listeners, people got mad about that. They that get one mad. Time. They're like, no, 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 make yeah. fun of Australia. Don't make fun yeah, of yeah. us. No, that's we fair. we have a good book scene. And so we on this show will now grant diplomatic immunity to New Zealand. That's not uh. true. But maybe for the next couple months. <laughs> maybe for the next few months, okay. unless something really ridiculous happens. So we've got kind of an interesting thing to we talk do. about now. Um, the A topic, as it's known in the media world, um, that's a little behind the curtain for you. Uh, what in what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about um, something that you see that you're seeing more and more of, folks. Um, we're talking about what happens and what kind of gets revealed when um, someone is both a writer or a creator of some kind, and also someone who works in the publishing industry. And you see this a lot of the di- a lot of different times. Like, I aspire to be one, right? I'm an aspiring writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you see lots of other, you know, I can name, you know, a few different agents who write books and are also agents. There are people in publishing houses who um, are also authors on, yeah. this, on the quote-unquote side, you know? Like, I've got a ha- couple in my inbox right now, right. actually. Yeah, no, it, it happens a lot. And it's it's interesting. And it, it's got, it got us kind of thinking, you know, on the one hand, like, I don't want to have a conversation about, like, is it is it useful or not for publishing to be treating its own workforce as creators? Um, as much as I'm kind of interested in the question of, like, what does it say that it's happening and what, like, might someone who is working both sides of that divide be able to see that others don't, you know? Um, and so... I guess the place to start, Laura, is like when like what do you what do you make of this? Like if when you see someone or when you hear about someone in publishing who's also a writer, um well maybe actually let me rephrase it for you. Let me start with you. Yep. You ever wanted to be a writer? Yes, I did. And uh-huh. then I realized that I hate writing. <laughs> well, do you think that it would be useful for you to be a writer? Would you feel like you might be better or worse at your job if you were a writer? Um I I want to say neither because mm. I am already really like developmental um, with my projects. You know, I, I right. had a big long conversation earlier today with, you know, revising some plot points with another author of mine. And I feel like that is something that would stay the same if I were a writer. But one... Um, I, I think that for other people, being a writer yourself maybe gives you some tools that you might not otherwise develop. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit more compassion or a little bit more like strategic understanding of somebody who has like a multidisciplinary type of career aimed, you know, mm. towards the writing. Or, I mean, I don't know, because I don't have it and I never will. Um, But I do know what it's like to work with you, who Uh comes at this a lot from a very, like, creator, creative standpoint. And I do know that you develop projects with your authors very, very directly in a way that I don't. But maybe that's also just because I mostly do fiction and you mostly do nonfiction. Sure. I mean, I think, for me, um, like, when I finished college and actually this is something we can talk about in a little bit like I did creative writing as my like degree quote unquote if you can even call it a degree some maybe wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily disagree with those people but um, I came out with a writing degree and my thought and this is I think actually 
at the time, I've like gone back and forth on whether this was a naive thought, and I think that it it was at the time certainly, and it's start, it's starting to kind of feel like one again. But like I want to do get into the book world because it was the only job I can think of that might help me be close. Because you can't. I knew at the time you can't just like graduate college and go like sign up and be a writer. You know right. what I mean? Like that's not a job you just go get. I mean, I guess sometimes it is, but it's you have to like produce work for a while and like prove you can write outside of having a job before it's you know it's not something that appears at a job fair you know like right. it's, it's not that kind of career and so I was like well publishing is I can go work in publishing and then I'll you know eventually I'll just write my own book and, and I'll hop over and they'll publish it for me right there while I'm at the <laughs> you know <laughs> and this was obviously a terrible plan and someone should have talked me out of it at some point but um, no one did and so here I am um, in publishing, having wanted first and foremost to be a writer by way of publishing. And I will say that, like right now, I'm definitely, I would say being a writer has definitely helped my, like it's helped my publishing side of things. Like I feel like I'm probably a better editor of other people's work because of it. I'm a better reader, you know, because I write. I'm, you know, someone who can maybe, you know, talk craft and stuff with Mm -hmm. people in a way that I probably wouldn't if I wasn't um, trying to do things myself. I'm definitely, this is something I do think is interesting, though, is I'm definitely a worse writer because of publishing. Okay, so so question. talk about that for a little bit. Well, because all my energy goes into, like, writing is a lot of work, right? Like, writing a novel is, it's the worst thing in the entire damn world. Like, it, it sucks. And all the more so when you're spending a lot of that sort of energy, that kind of, um, you know, creativity, like all day, you know, if you're you're spending the day kind of staring at Microsoft Word and, you know, editing other people's books and trying to think critically about what's good and what isn't, Mm -hmm. it's tough to then turn that, turn around and do that for yourself. Like you're tired on it. Like you're using that specific muscle all day. For something else. Um, it's Because like, I, f- I feel like a lot of writers kind of talk about, and, and it works for them, you know, they work in a field that isn't, that doesn't push them as a writer all mm-hmm. day. Like, you know, it pushes them in many other ways, but they, then they can come home and writing feels like a departure from where they were. And that's something you don't get. I don't, well, it just, it doesn't, yeah, for me specifically. And I'd be interested to kind of hear from um, other people in publishing who write how they feel about, you know, managing that difference. But like, for me, it's definitely made me a worse writer because I, I self-defeat more, right? Because my evaluation I is too active, you know? Like, you draft something and you're it's not... You're thinking too much about the market. You're thinking it, too yeah. much about comps. Right. You're thinking too much about everything exactly. else. Exactly. Like, you draft, you draft and something isn't good. And I'm too... I spend too much of my day looking at bad writing to then be able to turn that eye off for my own. You know, that's really interesting. And I think I am looking at creators who work in this field in a slightly different way. Sure. Um, So there are a lot of pros and cons for me for working with somebody who is a writer who works in publishing. Mm -hmm. Like, on the pro side, they know about timing and they know about the market and they know about... You know, all the things pros, that can, yeah. yeah, that can, that can trip up uh, a new or unfamiliar writer. But kind of in the negative side, 
I'm I'm wondering if there might be like a, a tendency to rest on your laurels or like a, a tendency to kind of lean into cronyism or or nepotism in in an interesting way. Like there there have been a spate really recently of a lot of editors getting deals in the same houses or even the same imprints that they work in. Yeah. Um which to me like as Wait, an agent that? that's that makes me really 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 concerned because because <laughs> a lot of the time first of all a lot of the time there might not even be an agent, right? And right. so then you have this was something you know, Alyssa did in a poll. Alyssa Jeanette, a friend of ours, yeah, who's an agent, was t- talking about this the other day. Yeah, yeah. So like a lot of the time, you know, if if there's no agent, then these writers are being essentially taken advantage of by their place of work because they're you know whatever. Because um, you're just the boss of the writer, you can do whatever you want to him. Right. You can dang. Yeah, no, that yeah. strikes me. That as a it, power yeah, so like the power, yeah, the power right. imbalance is really, really off. Like when you're the writer and your editor is your colleague, or maybe even your boss, or you know what I mean. It's it like gets even a really step weird. further. It's because like the concept we're talking about is um, people working in publishing, you know, also producing creative work that gets published. Yeah, this is like another layer where not only is that the case, but also. The place where you work in publishing is the specific house. Like, man, that gets that gets. Tough. And the payments it's, are weird because you get, you know, your payment as an employee, but then you get your ten ninety nine yeah. as the author, and you know how much money they're spending on your book, and you know what you're making, and there's just like a lot of there's just a lot of ickiness. There's a that lot going on. There. There's a lot of ickiness power. that happens there, and so like. The struggle with me is, you know, kind of against what Amazon is doing. We talk about how Amazon is a publisher and a distributor and a retailer and a printer and, you know, all of these, all of these different things, right? And the problem is, is that we get into that closed loop and then all of a sudden, um, you know, the market is skewed, bad things happen, authors are taken advantage of, they have no choice. Like, so it's, I'm, I'm worried in that element of individuals being taken advantage of, but also maybe um, not giving, <laughs> you know, like giving preferential treatment to people whose books like maybe aren't that good or I don't know. But yeah. that's, I mean, that's a lesser concern. But I'm, I'm more worried about the closed loop and the unethical elements of what it would mean to publish one of your employees it just feels yeah i mean that's tricky and i just like the idea of the closed loop i think even stems you know past ethical stuff because you do sort of get to a point where like if publishing as like a concept is like it's to take all the talent of the world and Mm -hmm. package it and show it to people right right if you're like and that is like a process that inherently draws like it draws people into it right like it takes people who aren't in publishing who have expertise elsewhere who are doing all these other things and you know basically gets them into this system and if that system is are is like then producing the work of people who already um, are in the system are in it, 
it's just like one because one thing that happens you know i think publishing has sort of this reputation and it's not necessarily a wrong one of being like it's very Mm self-referential right you know how like in like movies like hollywood loves movies about hollywood yes it feels a little bit like that where it's like we love you know like i feel like authors who who work in publishing you know and i think that it's and you see it all the time right like the um like one thing that i've really come to realize you know as we've is i've kind of come to understand the especially the liter specifically the literary markets um is it feels like every writer also has like some connection to some magazine you know they're like I remember feeling at one point the sensation that like every single person was married to every single other person, and they were you all know? blurbing each other's stuff. <laughs> exactly, like there's just this closed loop that happens, and it's tough to discuss it coherently, and it's tough to like, um, I don't know. It just it gets a little strange. I do think like so obviously I am someone who wants to publish his novel, but um, and to those who have, I guess I will say like. You know, there's something naturally self-selecting about it, right? Like people who work in publishing are probably, you know, naturally a set of people who think a lot about like in terms of fields that might be good at writing, publishing Mm -hmm. is probably pretty high up there, right? Because it's people who are interested in books are probably the ones most likely to write books, right? So it does make sense. And it is in that way a good thing. Um, It's just like. I don't know. I don't even know quite how to describe the sensation, right? It's you want to, and I don't know how to manage that split. Like I would be interested to talk to someone who does it, you know, not in an aspirational way. Someone well, who it's really like a, is. It's like, like a large scale of of the the Booker thing that we were just talking about, right? You know, you publishing's job is to curate and promote and to put out unexpected or exciting or new um works mm-hmm. for for the readers right mm-hmm. like that's right. that's what traditional publishing does in you know in the entire yeah. landscape yeah. and so when you have the closed loop what you're doing is you're taking what's easy rather than what is unexpected or fresh or challenging or new yeah. Um, it the easy way means that we might just be getting more of the same, and you know, gets back to the institutional issues of publishing, yeah. where most of the people working here are, you know, middle or upper class yeah. white cis het yeah. women. Right. And if you take these identities and you say, okay, like, you know, a huge <clears throat> amount of you are writers, and we're just gonna publish you, what that does is it closes the loop not just in a kind of uncomfortable structural way for those specific writers, but it also means that there are other people who might look at that and say, well, I'm never going to get in. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, there's a certain order of events here that I think is crucial too. Like, I think it's interesting when people who were like writers first, then later get into publishing as opposed to people who are in publishing first becoming writers, you know? And again, like anyone we're thinking of here, like this is not, like I can think of a lot of people who fit, you know, who do both, who work in publishing and who I think are tremendously talented. And it's it's less about like, 
individuals than like as a concept that I'm like interested in, you know, and like you think about, you know, like the Dan Mallory thing, he worked in publishing, you know, and his books were, you know, we had this whole blow up about it that sort of came from this very self-referential ecosystem that produced a lot of toxicity, you know, and um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I think like looking back, if I were, again, like thinking purely as a writer, like if I were trying to, um, if I were like doing it again, like if I were 22 again and trying to decide, you know, out of college what I wanted to do, and my priority was becoming a writer and like mm-hmm. pushing everything I had, I don't know that I would go into publishing again. Like I think I did it out of this like naive like sense of pragmatism, mm. which is a really dumb way to if pick I a job wanted, in publishing. <laughs> if I wanted to become a writer. I don't think I would have gone into publishing either. Or if I had, it would be something not in like agenting editorial. Yeah. It wouldn't. It would be maybe yeah. like publicity. Right. But like that I'm, feels I'm not actually, cute and rich enough to like be in publicity. That feels very complimentary, actually. Like being able to. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just sound like cute and rich enough to yeah, be. Yeah, I did. Anyway, um, but it's. <laughs> God, I can't get over it. Um, <laughs> but so please get us back on track. Okay. Here, well, I, I mean, I, just thinking about yeah. like the person. Okay. So shout out to Eric Smith, who started as a book publicist yeah. and no, then that's... moved and then as a re- book publicist and author. Right. And then moved to agenting. Like I feel. So I think that, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. And maybe like at some point we, instead of just like name dropping him, we should have him on the show. Yeah. But. Um, Come on the show, Eric. We miss you. Yeah, we miss you. Um, but like to me, that is fundamentally less problematic than. And even like Eric was working at Quirk Books and had a book published by them. But like fundamentally, like that is less icky feeling than like I'm an assistant at a big five house yeah, and they're publishing my book for probably and probably giving me more money than I make in a year. You yeah. know what I mean? Because then like institutionally you're like forcing somebody to live in New York. You're keeping them there. You're, you know, like you probably didn't have an agent. So you've got some unfavorable terms. Like, you know, there's, there's some, there's some icky there. The money uh, stuff is interesting as it relates to like book spending versus, um, like Salaries. salary. <laughs> so I remember, like, we've talked about this on here before too. But like, feeling in an editorial meeting as like editors and you know the publisher decide how much to spend on an just advance. give them forty thousand yeah, dollars. They're just like batting around numbers that they don't. Then they're like talking about it like it just it would be a total drop in the bucket, and it's more than like anyone on the staff makes. It's a little crazy, but um anyway that's our beautiful industry yeah i mean and it's complex and i didn't you know and i and i think that neither of us mean to come out of this exploration with with any sort of take with regards to like working with somebody who is also a writer that also and i would recommend it on the publishing side of things because like i said i think that it like if i found out that my agent was a writer too or was someone really interested i would actually be very interested in that. well i do know that and you are much more empathetic than i am <laughs> in terms of agenting and to, i don't think it's just our personalities because let me t- tell you yeah <laughs> um but no i i think that it's um like i said i i do think it's interesting because i do think it's maybe a better 
agent and a better editor and a better person in publishing, even if it hasn't necessarily gone back the other way. Um, like, I guess one my question to anyone who listens to the show who does both is, how is it that you've managed to keep being a writer, mm. even as you work in publishing? That would be kind of my, because that feels way tougher to me than, like, turning it around and using your writer skills to do publishing work, which, again, like, I think complements it really well, like, having these, this kind of skill set. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. I wonder what James Patterson, who has his own he's imprint like the now, mo- he's the most version of this, isn't he? In the in the opposite direction. Yeah. He started obviously as a writer, uh-huh. and now has his own imprint. Rick Riordan also has uh-huh. one. Yep. And you know, like I'm sure other people that I'm forgetting now, but that to me speaks a lot more to the like tradition of having big and good thinkers like curate anthologies or teach literature or um, like that to me seems going in the opposite direction. I don't know why this is, but going from writer to publisher feels a lot more like an exploration of curation and taste than in going the opposite way. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know. I think maybe, like, maybe it is, even though you are a writer and an agent, like, maybe maybe it's just something that we're, that as agents we're caught looking at the pitfalls of what it means to be a worker first and then a creator second. Yeah. But, I don't know, maybe we're just thinking about it in the wrong way. Almost always we are, Laura, <laughs> about any given topic. Uh well, anyway. let's yeah. let's transition now then Please. into our Tulune It May Concern. I'm going to read it to you, and I think Eric and I will have very different answers, and I'm really interested to hear what they are. We're going to have really different answers to this? Maybe. Can't wait. Tulune It May Concern. Greetings. I am emailing because I am having a dilemma. I'm a big reader, and lately I've been wondering if it is indeed better to purchase ebooks rather than print books. Personally, I prefer ebooks. This has to do with portability and convenience. However, I see the case against this. Authors make less money through ebook purchases, and even though I make all my ebook purchases through Amazon and I understand that I am part of the problem, I hate the amount of power the company has over the publishing industry. I'm going back to school for environmental science and I'm taking a hard look at my carbon emissions and waste. It would seem that even though when I buy a print book and I own it forever, it is better for the environment to have an ebook. The emissions generated while creating the Kindle or other tablet would eventually be in the negative if enough books are purchased. So here is my dilemma. Do I purchase print books from local bookstores and give more money to the bookstore and to the author? Or do do I do my part in protecting the environment by going completely digital? Please help. P.S. I also use my local library and it only makes and only make book purchases after I've read the book for the from the library and want to own it myself. Okay, so you go first. Well, my my answer is simple. Um, I don't think that this person is doing like they're very they're clearly very like morally conscious. You know, they're trying to be conscientious of the best way to be a consumer, and I think that whatever structural problems exist in publishing, whatever issues Amazon presents, which obviously are great and many, <laughs> um, they're not they're not about you. You know, like I think that you should be like, yeah, there's some individual choices we can all make here and there that, you know, are better, but like we're talking big systems versus individual behavior here, you know, and I just think like if you 
if you want to read ebooks instead of a print book, you should buy the ebook. You know, you should. Um, Ideally, not from Amazon, sure. but honestly, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, that that's probably there's probably a point to be made there, but like, I think that when we start looking at these things as products of, like, the reason Amazon is gaining traction is not because everyone wants to read ebooks instead of like it's mm-hmm. it's about bigger systems than individual behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like. And so I would just kind of tell this person, like, it sounds like you're a perfectly conscientious literary citizen, you know, and you should not necessarily worry so much about, I don't know, I get maybe I'm maybe that's like problematic or something. But like I get like, you know, yeah, shop at Indies and do all these stuff when you can and when you want to. Um, But like that's not where the game is being won and lost right now. Like you are not the difference and like it's. So you're thinking the no ethical consumption under capitalism. I am, yeah. No, I think that it's, you know, and there are always, there's always ways to critique our own individual behavior, which it seems like you're doing in anything, publishing or not. But this is, um, this is about something much larger than your choice to to buy ebooks because, you know, and it sounds like all the reasons you would want an ebook instead of a print book are perfectly valid. So um, I would say just, keep rocking it and figure out a different way to support things, you know? Yeah. So I am coming at this question from a very different angle, which is like the actual number breakdown sort of thing. Um, And so fundamentally, just very, very broadly, um, I did a little bit of research. It usually takes about 22 to 23 eBooks purchased for a tablet um, or like an e-reader to to offset the the carbon footprint of creating that e-reader. Mm-hmm. So you take into account, you know, the amount of power it takes to run it, and that will vary depending, you know, if it's a Kindle Paperwhite, that's different than, you know, an iPad, et cetera. Um, so if, if it's going to be one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to have, I'm going to read 50 e-books on this, on this, um, on this tablet, then roughly that is going to be a better choice carbon footprint wise. However, that doesn't take into account um, the varying like <laughs> paper of of how long the book is, but it also doesn't take into account like if you're using your e-reader for other things, you mm-hmm. know, if it is just an e-reader yeah. and that's all you use it for, yeah. um, it's going to be probably harder to to cover that carbon footprint than if you read everything on your phone and you you're going to have a phone anyway or an ipad anyway or a a laptop anyway um we also like quite honestly um i think a, a concern that this reader mentioned had to do with supporting the the author and about how you make more money on a print book and that's not exactly true uh so industry standard is that an author gets 25 percent of an ebook right and so if an ebook is ten dollars you know that that author is you know getting we're going super rough here like 250 right Mm -hmm. um if it's a paperback for example the paperback might be 17 dollars 
But that author, depending on how many books they've sold already, and this is like a trade paperback situation, may only be getting seven or seven and a half percent. And so in a lot of cases, like, honestly, you're not as a consumer, you're not going to know what an author is going to be making off of each individual book. And then that's complicated by things like the percentages based on formats you know it can you know there are things called escalator clauses with sales where up to a certain amount of books sold you're making one percentage and then after that you make a different percentage for each book sold and so like fundamentally the big thing is you know if you want to support authors there's a lot of things that you can do and they're not all financial you can you can you know get a book at a library you can write a review you can go to their events you can recommend their book to somebody else like there are all these things you can do but if you want to do financial just buying the book in general is going to help and you won't be able to figure out what that means and you're not ever going to be able to do that math because there's too many variable variables and every book is different. Right. Um, audiobooks, you know, add another level of complexity here. And so I think the big thing is like all everybody, you know, can and should be thinking about these things. And truly, like the answer is always it depends about what is better for the environment, what is better for the author. And you can do rough math. You know, if I know that I'm going to be reading 75 ebooks or books a year, I know it's going to be better to have them digitally. I know that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, if I am reading my ebooks on something that gobbles up a ton of electricity, maybe not. I don't know. And so ultimately, I am like all of this is to say I'm coming back around a little bit (laughs) to to sort of your take, but for a different reason, which is like whatever you prefer, as long as you're being conscientious, leaving reviews, engaging with these people, spending your money if you can't afford to spend it. I think the big thing is like if you're buying ebooks, just don't use a Kindle. Yeah. Right. I think like that's kind of just the big thing. Um And it is worth mentioning that on Amazon, even if Amazon gives, like if you have no choice but to buy on Amazon, I know that um, a lot of people that they don't have the finances to buy off of big, um, like big websites. But with Amazon, if Amazon is selling a book at a discount, the author still gets the same cut no matter what, because Mm -hmm. what Amazon is selling the book for doesn't affect what the publisher gets from the sale. So Amazon often uses them as loss leaders. So even that, you know, if the choice is to not buy the book or to buy the book for a significant discount, you're not harming the author by doing that that significant discount, at least not in the way that you think you might be. But just to kind of end this discussion, I would like to let you all know about two apps that I found out about (laughs) recently. (laughs) Please, Laura, um, tell me about the apps. (laughs) There are two apps. So one is I signed up recently for Libro FM. This is um, specifically for uh, audiobooks, but I'm a big fan. It's basically like the Audible, but for indie bookstores and not Amazon. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then also for audiobooks, there is an app called Chirp and you it's you sign up. It's a it's a you know newsletter essentially. It comes to you every day and its publishers will put a book on deep discount for 15 days or 30 days or something like that. Um, 
and you're going to you're you know you'll be able to um you'll be able to get that for for a lot less money without going to audible you know that kind of equivalent is bookbub for ebooks mm-hmm. um and you know indiebound for for um indie you know indie books if you want to stay away from amazon so i think um sorry if that doesn't give you a clear <laughs> a clear answer dear reader uh, but I think there are just a lot of elements and fundamentally, like the key thing is that people are engaging with this industry and using this industry regardless of, you know, the larger machinations of these gigantic corporations. Yeah. Um, so with that, I urge you all to go read a book. <laughs> read a damn book uh, read a damn book uh yeah let us know what you're reading again like i especially want to know for totally wrong about the testaments thing i do have it on hold from the library but it'll be a million years until i get it because i think this one is one of the books that's been windowed um so it'll be a very very long time but anyway thank you so much for joining us on this episode of print run and we will see you for a regular episode next week bye